to Pleading the Case, a broadcast devoted to peeling back the culture and traditions associated with today's Christian faith through a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture. Welcome. My name is Andy Mendonza, and I will be your host. I'm going to title this episode, The Church as Last Eve, Proving that Jesus Came to Redeem a Bride, Part 1. Because I want to build on the first episode, The Church Like Eve, which, if you will remember, is based on 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4, where Paul is telling us, as the church, both male and female, that we have been betrothed to one husband, Christ Jesus, and he desires for us to be pure as a virgin, but that he fears that, like Eve, who was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that our own minds might be led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ. And that if someone comes along uh, teaching a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different Holy Spirit, that we put up with it easily enough. And that's... uh, it's a frightening thought, as I've said before, that, that we put up with it easily enough. That, that's how easy it is for deception to creep into our midst. And it, it does so primarily in-house. It's not coming from the outside. It is coming from the inside because that's where deception comes from. But we always think it's going to come to us from the outside, and so that's what we put up our guard against, is the outside. But from the outside is just way, way too obvious in in most cases. Uh, And because we always are looking outward for deception to come in, it, 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 it strikes us with fear. But should it? You know, we, we, we talk about uh, fear, uh, we succumb to fear, uh, but, but fear is really the absence of love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Fear is the opposite of love, not, not hatred, fear. Fear is the opposite of love because fear has to do with punishment and those who fear are not perfected in God's love. And that's what God wants us to do. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about us being perfected in God's love, not not being deceived. Yet if we don't know how to recognize when deception is creeping in, how are we going to identify it? We're not, especially if we don't think that it can happen in our midst when we're preaching and teaching the truth of salvation through Jesus and through Jesus only. We think that deception really can't creep in, and we certainly don't believe or think that it could possibly be coming to us through our leadership. 
But if our leadership, who's primarily male, which I'm a man, so um, I, I think that I can speak to this on some levels, if I don't understand that the way that Jesus sees me as being part of the church, the church being both male and female, uh, as being a bride, then in effect I am already deceived. And if I have those prejudicial views towards women, and what I mean by that is that anything having to do with Eve and her being deceived and then becoming the deceiver, that that only applies to women, then that, that presents a very prejudicial view in my mind, in my heart, and ultimately in my actions towards women in general, especially in terms of, of the church as a whole and what God's purpose is as the church, both male and female, for our very specific roles where, where he is equipping us to be contributors to the overall kingdom mission and advancement. If we, in effect, leave one half of the body out, if, if we, by our actions, by our prejudices, uh, by our beliefs that, that women are to look like this and only can be involved in certain areas then what we're doing is literally hamstringing ourselves as the body because that's what deception does. It, it causes a dysfunctionality within the body because we have basically marginalized one entire half of us, women, we still have the attitudes uh, that women should be seen and not heard. But is that really scripturally correct? And I, I want to give you an example, one that I think is a very profound example, a very provable example, uh, but one that is today, uh, in terms of the church and the way we function as a church, the way we see the value and worth of every single person in the church from, from the time we are born until the time that God calls us home, God has very significant purposes for us to fulfill. We have value. We have equal value. No one has more value than anyone else. In fact, Quite honestly, I have seen a, an infant, a baby, do more ministry in the life of an older widow than 10 adults combined trying to minister with that widow. But let me, let me give you this example. Let me tell you what I'm talking about because I know for some who might be listening to this, you know, just the idea of women in ministry and church and positions and places is akin to, to heresy, blasphemy. Uh, 1 Timothy 5 
verses 9 and 10. Now, just prior to this, it's talking about the care of widows, uh, widows who, who are in need, uh, but, but it's also talking about anyone who doesn't take care of uh, their family. And in, in that context, it's speaking of um, widows in the family as well, uh, immediate family and, and even extended family. And um, it's really also talking about our corporate family uh, for us as churches, that, that, that we as churches, if we do not take care of our family, it says we are worse than unbelievers and have denied the faith. And the, the implications of that is we, we can come together uh, week after week to praise God uh, in our worship services, you know, singing and praying and, and presenting the word and giving of our tithes and offerings, and God questions whether it's really unto him because we have not taken care of our families. So First Timothy 5, verse 9 and 10. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Um, 30 years ago, when, when I started a a ministry with widows in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I was going around uh, trying to raise support, speaking to pastors. Uh, I was amazed um, the number of times I was confronted with these passages, these two passages in First Timothy. I was told that this, the widows that, that I was seeking to minister with, by helping them with home repair needs, um, that they needed to qualify based on these two passages, that, that these two passages were seen by them. Their understanding was that we shouldn't help anyone unless they qualified uh, according to this list, which I didn't believe that, but I didn't have um, a lot of evidence for that. Um, so I didn't really argue the point. I just believe that um, God's view of widows, um, what qualifies a widow, even for what defines a widow. A widow is a woman who's bereft of a husband, and there's no age or no circumstance um, that would prevent her from, from being cared for. But this this passage is um, something entirely different. The book of Timothy has been been referred to as a, a, a pastoral book uh, because it talks about offices, uh, talks about the office of, of overseer or, or bishop bishopric uh, of of deacon, and there are qualifications listed for that. But for some reason, and it's, the reason is because it's women, suddenly we become very finite in our view of, of these two passages. And this couldn't possibly be talking about anything of an official capacity within the church. It has to be talking about um, 
who we should be helping, who qualifies for help here, even though that's kind of addressed in the, the previous passages of Scripture uh, when it talks about widows and that families need to take care of widows. Uh, but there's one word that gives us profound insight into what, what is being addressed here, and it's the word list. Uh, the original Greek word that's translated as the word list in verse 9, no widow may be put on the list of widows. Listen to what the meaning of this word list is. Of those widows who held a prominent place in the church, a prominent place in the church, and exercised a certain superintendence over the rest of the women, and had charge of the widows and orphans supported at the public expense. There's no such thing as an office of widow today. Uh, you know, what's interesting, from time to time, uh, you'll hear a message uh, that talks about, you know, older women need to be, need to be teaching younger women. But that's as far as it goes. It's, it's lip service. You know, it reminds me of that passage in, uh, when Jesus quotes Isaiah. You know, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far away. Though you pursue me with pleading, I'm nowhere to be found because you teach as doctrine the precepts of men. This is a precept of man in the reverse. It is the exclusion of women. It is the exclusion of older widows it, it, it is the opposite of honoring them, as Scripture says. It's the opposite of what Jesus does for his own mother as his last act on the cross, which is an act of pure and undefiled worship. The office of widow, this position, is completely absent. It's not even a topic of, of discussion in so many churches today. And the idea that, that a woman would, would, would hold an office in the context of a church would split churches, would split denominations, would potentially cause such division in the church. And I don't think I'm exaggerating. But why do we say or acknowledge that older women should teach the younger women? And who are the older women? The, the majority of, of older women, as I understand it, uh, generally will be widows. And to put a cyst or include in our churches a separate but equal, if you will, system of care and oversight and uh, for the purpose of discipleship and, and mentoring and counseling and uh, child-rearing uh, and prayer, teaching younger women how to pray, uh, being a model of faithfulness, uh, raising kids, staying faithful to husband and family. Who's supposed to do that? Men? Men who do not even understand that God sees them also sees them as Christ's bride. And so I want to spend the rest of this episode essentially proving 
that that is the way that God sees us, both men and women, as the church, as his bride, fully his bride. That that's what Jesus came to do, was to redeem a bride, making the gospel a proposal of marriage, and we as the church are in effect like the last Eve, in the same way that Jesus is the last Adam, the last and final Adam. The first Adam was earthy, and the second Adam is spiritual. And I think it should be obvious to us that once we are in Christ, once we have accepted Jesus' proposal of marriage, that the only role that's left for us as the church is that of bride. Jesus has fulfilled the role of husband, bridegroom, and savior. He is the last Adam. And whereas the first Adam, who was earthy, was deceived, just as his, his bride, Eve, was deceived, Jesus was not deceived. He was tempted. He resisted temptation. He fully fulfilled his Father's will, not his own. Fulfilled it to completion, offering up his life, giving up his life for us so that we might live with him as bride and bridegroom for all eternity. So that means that for us, the first Adam is no longer a factor in our relationship to Jesus. And that only leaves Eve. That's all that's left in terms of our vulnerability. We have a brand new identity in Christ. We are new creatures. We have been given a new name. And that name belongs to our Heavenly Father. We are under His household now. And the first Adam has no place in our lives. But the vulnerability of Eve is our constant struggle. Being deceived. Our sincere and pure devotion to Christ being sidelined, really. Uh, that our minds be led astray from this. So back when I, when I read this in this context for the first time, when, when it finally hit me that Paul, when he's talking about I betrothed you to, to one husband, uh, that, that we are a bride, that, that he desires we remain pure as a virgin, that he's speaking to us both as men and women. And so it raised the question for me, if that's true, and Jesus is the last Adam, the final Adam, does that mean that, that we as the church, as the bride, are in effect either likened to or actually are the last Eve? I, I mean, it kind of was a mind-boggling question or realization. That, like, how in the world... You know, can I get my mind around this? And 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 even uh, of greater concern was, um, can this be proven? 
can this be proven? I mean, I know that uh, what was covered in the last episode to to present this idea, um, to to prove that we are a bride, that's how God sees us, both male and female, and our vulnerability is that of Eve's, not Adam's, but that of Eve's for being deceived. Can it be conclusively proven as much as anything can be absolutely proven in Scripture? But where do you start? I mean, how in the world can you possibly prove this? And what, what occurred to me was that if we are, in effect, the last Eve, if the church is the last Eve, then it seems reasonable, at least it seemed reasonable to me, that we should be able to find correlations in Genesis 2, 21 through 25, which is the account of the creation of Eve through Adam, we should be able to find correlations with each of those, those verses and, and what is actually recorded as taking place there. We should be able to find correlating passages of Scripture in the New Testament specifically tied to Jesus and what he came to do. And so that's what I set out to prove, to, to look at each one of these passages and then to go to the New Testament and to find the correlating passages that, that could be seen as a line being drawn from them directly to the New Testament and to Jesus. And that's what I want to start out presenting uh, in this episode. Um, it's a lot of information, um, a lot of passages are involved. So let's just jump right into this. And I'm going to begin actually a little bit before uh, verse 21 in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to start with uh, chapter, I mean, verse 18 in chapter 2. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. He's talking about Adam. He's already created Adam from the dust of the earth. He says, I will make a helper suitable for him. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, it's not good for, for man to be alone. Uh, it's not good for any of us to be alone. Uh, that's really, I believe, a, a very significant point in and of itself. If you remember when, when Jesus is, is speaking to his disciples uh, and is telling them that he's going to be leaving, he says, but don't worry. I'm not going to leave you alone, essentially. He says, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I am going to send uh, my spirit. And we know that that his spirit is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us, abides in us, uh, when we accept Jesus' proposal of marriage. We, We are tied to Jesus at that moment. In fact, it says at that moment... We are already seated with him in the heavenly realm, that we are citizens in heaven. That's our first priority for citizenship from that moment on. All earthly citizenships become secondary or less. It's not good for man to be alone. 
we can see already what, what God does through Jesus, offering him up, giving up his life, uh, defeating death on our behalf, and not leaving us comfortless, not leaving us alone when we accept his proposal of marriage. Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground, just like he formed out of the ground, formed Adam out of the ground. All the wild animals, all the birds of the sky, he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that's what its name was. Verse 20, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the air, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And that's the introduction into the creation of Eve through Adam. And so I'm going to read through this before we start breaking down the individual passages, as well as individual words in these passages for the ways that they are tied directly to Jesus in what he came to do for us and that we are in effect now the last Eve as his bride. Verse 21, and I'm reading out of the NIV. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Let's look at this very first line. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, there's actually two different Hebrew words for this idea of sleeping or sleep this sleep that God caused Adam to fall into. The first one is, is deep sleep. And it means deep sleep that's like a trance. And the, the root word for it, the definition of, of the root word for this deep sleep or trance is be unconscious, to be in a heavy sleep to be fast asleep. You know, you, you can look at that and go, okay, he was asleep, you know, in a very deep sleep. Like, you know, it's almost, to me, like it's describing uh, REM sleep. But then it says, while he was sleeping, there's a, a completely different Hebrew word that's being used there. And we know that when we are put under anesthesia uh, or an induced coma. When someone's put into an induced coma because their injuries are, are so severe, uh, they need to be still while they can stabilize, while they can stabilize you, right? Well, this, this word, yashain, uh, the Hebrew word for... Um, while he was sleeping, while he slept, uh, means figuratively to die. Figuratively to die. Jesus, by contrast, on the other hand, 
dies a literal death. He has to die a literal death in order for him to defeat death and be resurrected. And that's the good news, is that Jesus defeats death, is resurrected, and now we have the opportunity to join with him, to be with him for eternity as his bride, as the church, as the last Eve, if you will. Luke twenty three forty six. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. And this is repeated in, in John chapter 19, verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The first Adam's death was certainly a figurative one. Jesus, as last Adam, had to die a literal death, which we've already talked about this, in order to be able to fulfill God's promise for deliverance, redemption, and ultimately restoration, to, for us to be able to have a way to enter back into paradise, the place that Adam and Eve came from, a place that is without sin. We know that, but there are also some other instances in the New Testament that have to do with, with death, but also death that is spoken of as just being asleep. When Jesus and his disciples went to see about Lazarus, who it had been reported to them uh, that he was dead, Jesus responded to his disciples, John eleven eleven. our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, it had been reported that he was dead, but Jesus said he's just fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. In verse eleven thirteen, because his disciples thought he meant natural sleep, he makes it clear to them that he meant death, that Lazarus was in fact dead. He was dead, but he calls it sleep, and he raises him for, from this death, which is obviously a foreshadowing of Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. But in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, uh, talking about Stephen, after he has been stoned to death, it says he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. But we know that Stephen was dead. He was dead. And God didn't wake him up. At least not until he is resurrected with all of us at the very end of this age. In both these instances, Lazarus and Stephen, uh, they're dead. But in one instance, Jesus is obviously describing death as being asleep. And the author of, of Acts uh, is describing Stephen's death as falling asleep. There is at least one other instance, though, where this, this same Greek word uh, that's been translated as, as sleeping, uh, but, but meaning 
symbolically death or figuratively death. Uh, it, it actually involves Peter when he has been arrested and has been put in jail, uh, waiting, awaiting trial where he's, he's going to be brought before Herod. Uh, in Acts 12, 6, it says, Now Peter had, had been arrested. He had been taken down to a jail cell, uh, what sounds to be like a dungeon. There, there are guards posted outside. Uh, he's bound with, with chains, uh, hands and feet, I think. And uh, there's, he's sleeping between two soldiers. Peter is sleeping between two soldiers. And we know that Peter is not dead that he's only sleeping. But this idea, this word for sleep uh, that's used here is meant to be understood as symbolically dead or figuratively he is in a death-like sleep. Now, I know we're trying to present or I'm trying to present correlations between these passages in Genesis that have to do with the creation of of Eve through Adam, the first Adam, and Jesus who came who's to redeem a bride, uh, the church, uh, the last Eve. Uh, so what does Peter have to do with this? Why, why introduce Peter uh, at this point? And, and I am going to explain that in far more detail, which will provide a much more complete picture, but uh, I will kind of introduce more information about Peter in this setting. But for now, uh, let's just continue on uh, with the next part of Genesis 2, 21, that says, after he was put into this deep, uh, figuratively death-like sleep, uh, like an induced coma, it says uh, that God took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. At least for me, as I was first studying this, uh, it seemed pretty obvious what the correlation is with Jesus here, uh, with, with Adam's rib being removed, and the fact that uh, Jesus is pierced in the side. In John 19.34, it says, One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And this piercing of Jesus' side uh, takes place after he's died. So the first Adam dies a figurative death, or is figuratively dead in this deep sleep. And Jesus has died a literal death, but one... Uh, in which he will be resurrected from. And he's pierced in the side. Now, you know, with Jesus, it says he was pierced in the side. With Adam, it says that his rib was removed. And, of course, we know that um, ribs run along the side of the body, the torso. Uh, and Jesus being pierced in the side is is... Logically, unless it was down around his waist, uh, it, it happened uh, where his ribs are. But is that really enough? Is that really enough? Well, uh, interestingly, if, if we look up the word for rib, 
as in the rib that was removed from Adam, we find that um, this word, uh, which has been translated some 41 times in the Old Testament from the Hebrew, uh, that in only two instances has it been translated as the word rib. And both of them are here in this account of the creation of Eve through Adam. Uh, Nineteen times the word has actually been translated as the word side. And in the context, in many of those instances, it's talking about the side of the Ark of the Covenant or the side chambers or cells of the temple structure. And even uh, speaking about the sides of the tabernacle. So it's not a stretch. It's not hard to make this connection for what the Ark of the Covenant symbolizes, what the tabernacle symbolizes, and uh, in, in, in Jesus. Uh, what they are meant to represent in terms of, of being a shadow and copy of heavenly things and then Jesus coming in the flesh to be the fully right, realized reality of that shadow and copy, that he is not a shadow or a copy. He is actual. And as the actual, he is the last and final Adam and bridegroom. Now, looking at, at Jesus, who was pierced in the side with a spear after he died, the Greek word for side, it's been translated as side, is the word plura. And according to Strong's uh, definitions, uh, means a rib. Uh, it means side by extension, but it, it is a rib. What perhaps is, is equally interesting is that this this Greek word that's been translated as the word side, but really means rib, has only been used five times in the New Testament, and four of them are in the Gospel of John. Uh, the first time it's used, of course, is when Jesus is pierced in the side in John 19.34. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus aside with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And then the next three times it's used is when Jesus first appears to his disciples in John chapter 20, verse 20. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Then in verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. And as you have probably already figured out, uh, it's, it's Thomas who is being told this by the other disciples that they've seen the Lord, and um, this is where... 
the expression doubting Thomas comes from. Uh, Thomas doubts, says, unless I can put my fingers where the nails were, uh, where he was pierced in the side, I'm not going to believe it. Uh, in verse 27, uh, Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And finally, the fifth and final time uh, this, this word is translated as the word side is, uh, once again, uh, the, the setting in Acts 12 where Peter has been arrested and thrown into prison, bound with chains, and is in a deep, figuratively like death sleep. In verse 7, it says, Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And again, I'm not going to go into more detail about Peter and the setting and its significance uh, just yet, uh, but, but it is important to point it out in this discussion of uh, the word rib and the word side and the correlation between uh, the first Adam and the last Adam in the context of uh, a bride, the last Eve, the first Eve and the last Eve. As an aside, just, just one more small point that needs to be made. When in Genesis 2, 21, it says he took one of the man's ribs, uh, included are two meanings for this word he took. Uh, and amazingly, uh, one of the meanings is Mary, as in not to be Mary, but to marry someone and take a wife. Now, it's been used a lot, this word, this original Hebrew word. Uh, in fact, it's been used 965 times. And the majority of them are translated as the word take. But in five instances... It has been translated as the word married. Now, how does this correlate with Jesus coming to redeem a bride? Because that's exactly what he did. God allowed Jesus' life to be taken, to be offered up, for him to, to die a literal death, to descend into hell, to defeat death, and to be resurrected on the third day, all for the purpose of redeeming a bride, a bride that we call the church, but a bride nonetheless. And that bride, well, hopefully you will be convinced by the end of, of this, this study, uh, after this case has been made, that, that Jesus came to redeem a bride, and that bride uh, is 
the last eve. We are the last eve. There is yet one final word that we need to look at before we move on to verse 22, and it's the word flesh. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. So after God takes one of Adam's ribs, according to this passage, God then he closes up this place in his side with flesh. The Hebrew word that's been translated as the word flesh is the noun basar and just literally means flesh. No mystery there. But it also uh, can represent or, or be or symbolize mankind, animal kind, and uh, even nakedness. But then when we dig a little bit deeper and we look at the, the root word for basar uh, that uh, it has been derived from, uh, it is also the same word, basar, but in verb form. And I mean, this is just absolutely remarkable. What it means is to gladden with good news, to bear news, to announce salvation as good news, preach and to receive good news. That's what's being conveyed here when, when God closes up the wound where he has removed uh, this red rib when he, when he covers it up, uh, he is essentially saying it is finished. Uh, and, I mean, if this weren't in and of itself remarkable enough, uh, when you add to, to this uh, the Hebrew word for closed up, as in closed up the place with flesh, uh, in addition to uh, this word primarily uh, being translated as shut up, it is also translated as meaning something pure, as in pure gold. And perhaps equally profound, it has also been translated as to deliver or to deliver up. What God has literally done through the first Adam, removing his rib in order to create Eve through this rib, out of this rib, it is good news on the level of salvation. What we mean when we talk about the good news, the gospel, that we are talking about salvation and what Jesus has done on our behalf. Adam is Eve's salvation, as well as for all of those who will be her offspring. Salvation here, what God originally meant 
for it to be, to mean, was salvation would be carried out through childbirth or procreation. That was God's original intention for the union of a man and a woman that salvation, what we would call today evangelism, spreading the good news of the gospel that that Christ has risen, that he has paid the price for us, which is literally the bride price for us through the offering up of his own life and to proclaim that, to proclaim that good news of salvation and that when we accept this good news, Christ's proposal of marriage, we are betrothed to him, already married, even though we are still waiting for the end of this age to come uh, when the wedding feast of the Lamb, the marriage feast of the Lamb, will take place. So now, when we look at the fall, when we look at Adam and Eve, after they've sinned, and God is telling them what life is going to be like now. That for Eve, as a woman as someone who will give birth to children, he says, this is what the fall has done. It says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. You will give birth to children with painful labor. Think about that. God's intention had been, after creating Eve through Adam, that childbearing itself would be likened to salvation, the good news of salvation. Hopefully, this has been uh, made clear, but uh, I I want to... uh, review this again in terms of the correlating passage with Jesus coming to redeem a bride and the idea of um, God closing up the place where he removed Adam's rib, closed it up with flesh. It's in uh, the Gospel of John Chapter 19, verse 30, speaking of Jesus, when he had received the drink, you remember he cried out, said, I thirst, but he wasn't really, it wasn't a physical thirst. It it was a yearning to fulfill what it is that God had sent him to do. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. So think about this for for just a minute. What we just read about the first Adam and the significance of closing up this, this opening where the rib was removed, closing it up with flesh, 
and this having to do with with good news, uh, good news on the level of salvation of of what we today would 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 call the gospel. Um, this happens. Uh, it is finished. His side has been pierced. He gives up his spirit. It's finished. It is now in the process of being covered over with flesh, so to speak. Jesus dies. He descends into hell. He defeats death. And when he is raised from the dead, that that flesh is covers over death. It's defeated. It is no more. And what emerges from that is something that is as pure as gold. This is what God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What God is essentially doing, this promise that he's making, the promise that, that we believe has been fulfilled through Jesus offering up his life, it's, it's a single promise, but it's really threefold. Uh, because what Jesus came to do was to deliver, redeem, and to restore us. And that restoration, that full restoration, will take place when we are joined with him at the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's what we believe. But until then... We are betrothed to him when we accept his proposal of marriage. And that's the good news, that we now have a Savior who has fulfilled the promise that God made to Adam and Eve to be Savior, Messiah, but also bridegroom and husband, that Jesus through our acceptance of his proposal of marriage, has taken away our condition of spiritual widowhood. And that brings us to the end of verse 21, at least uh, for uh, the purpose of making this case for the correlation between the creation of Eve through the first Adam and Passages having to do with Jesus coming to redeem a bride uh, to, to prove that really uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I hope, I hope that will be the conclusion that, that those listening to this uh, will reach, that that ultimately is what Jesus came to do and that when we don't understand that, when we don't recognize that, when we don't realize the way that God sees us as the church, both male and female, as his bride, everything from that moment forward uh, has been skewed and uh, deception has been allowed to, to creep in and overtake us in greater, 
and greater and more profound ways so that after hundreds of years, maybe over uh, close to 2,000 years, um, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask, does the church today really resemble the church that, that God had in mind when he sent Jesus? Are we anywhere near the place of being the pure and undefiled bride that God desires for us to be? Uh, this is not the end of this discussion uh, for building uh, this case. There's still several more passages for us to, to examine, uh, both as a whole and the, the larger context of, of this group of passages, but, but also even uh, looking at individual words. So in our next episode, we'll be moving to the next verse in this series, verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And of course, we'll be continuing to look at passages having to do with Jesus in the New Testament coming to redeem a bride. Amen. You've been listening to Pleading the Case with Andy Mendonca, posing the question. Is the church today the pure and undefiled bride that God desires us to be? Or, like Eve, have we been deceived and our minds led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ? And I sincerely welcome your comments. Feel free to leave them on our website, or if you want to send me an email directly, you can send it to andy at widows.org. Until next time. Thank you.